וגם אני פתאום Hello and welcome to Kolot. This is your host, Rabbi Hillel Kappenstein, director of the Columbus Community Kolel. And it's an honor, a privilege to welcome you to our next episode featuring Rabbi Chaim Brook, the Chabad rabbi in Montana. Has anyone heard of Montana? Is it a flyover state? Well, we're going to learn about the incredible workings in Montana this evening and the very unique journey of Rabbi Brook, how he got to where he was personally and professionally. So I think you're going to really enjoy this episode as well. If you would like to sponsor a Kolot episode, please email me at rabbikappenstein at thekolot.org. That is R-A-B-B-I-K-A-P-E-N-S-T-E-I-N at thekolot.org. Also, if you've been enjoying Kolot's episodes, please consider buying raffle tickets or making a contribution on Team Kolot. The Columbus Community Kolot is having its annual campaign, and to support Kolot and all the amazing things that we do at the Columbus Community Kolot, you could help us do that by visiting yourtimecolumbus.com. Make sure to watch our Your Time video, and please consider making a contribution on Team Kolot. Thank you. But without any further ado, allow me to tell you about our guest. Rabbi Chaim Brook was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, studied at the prestigious Rabbinical College of America in Morristown, New Jersey, and married his beloved Chavi in 2006. Together, they founded and serve as co-CEOs of Chabad Lubavitch of Montana. They've adopted five delicious children and have built Montana's only mikvah. Rabbi Chaim loves sushi, would take a hike whenever possible, and enjoys bringing a piece of heaven to Big Guy Country. Rabbi Brook, thank you so much for joining Kolot. Very, very welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. It's Big Sky Country, not Big Guy Country. Big Sky Country. Big Sky Country. Big Sky Country. Why is it Big Sky, by the way? For that, you have to come to Montana to look up at the sky, and you'll know why they call it Big Sky. Okay, so, I take it as you've offered an invitation. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Tell our listeners, I mean, I read in your bio that you're from Brooklyn, your wife as well, or, you know, what, what's your what's your background? I was born in December of 1981 in Brooklyn. My parents uh, in Crown Heights. I'm the second of five children. I grew up for the first uh, 12 years of my life in the presence of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the friend of the The highlight of my life was being in his presence. I went through the yeshiva system. In Chabad, the yeshiva system is not just going to yeshiva, but you spend a lot of time running around the world helping different Chabad houses, so you get your fair share of uh, universal travel. In 2006, I married Chavi. Chavi grew up in San Antonio, Texas. She's not a New Yorker at all. She's a Texas girl. You better watch out for those Texas girls. And uh, we married, and she's, she's the daughter of the Chabad rabbis in South, the rabbi in Robinson in South Texas. She's the oldest of nine, eight girls and a boy. And uh, we married in March of 06 and uh, moved to Bozeman, Montana in March of 2007, a year later. Wow. How's your brother-in-law doing, by the way? (laughs) 
He's very, very sensitive and delicate and knows how to treat his wife wonderfully. He has a lot of experience watching lipstick and uh, eyeshadow being applied. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. Okay, so um, you mentioned that you had that your, the highlight of your childhood was growing up with the late Lubavitcher Rebbe. And we've had other um, Chabad Hasidim on. We had last year Rabbi Yossi or Y.Y. Jacobson talk about his uh, uh you know, being able to write the Rebbe Sichas and um, being a chayza of the Rebbe. Um, talk about your relationship with the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I see you have that beautiful picture behind you. Is that you, the little boy? That's me on my ninth birthday getting I knew it. I knew it was you, how handsome the boy was. I knew it. Yeah, um, but uh, My bubby used to say, you, used to, you were so cute. What happened? That's what my bubby's line to me was. Oh, oh, oh. Okay, we had a great yeah, day. yeah. I wouldn't say it on, at least on you know on air, but um... <laughs> she's in Ghana already. We're covered. We're good. Oh, we're covered. Um, okay. So, so you know, it's interesting. In the '80s, the Rebbe was already overwhelmed by the amount of people that were trying to interact with him. So, personal audiences, one-on-one, private meetings, what we call yechidus, weren't happening. I certainly was not in Rabbi Jacobson's uh, character, you know, caliber of being a chazer and, and being able to transcribe all of that. But I did have hundreds of opportunities to get dollars and be at the uh, davening and be at Fabrengans. And of course, by my birthday, we'd go get a dollar and the Rebbe would give us a second dollar um, to give him to duck on the day of our birthday. And so it wasn't necessarily an intellectual, deep relationship. Today, I'm a student of the Rebbe's wisdom. I study the Rebbe's teachings all the time, you know, every day. Um, but back then, it was more of a this, this fatherly figure who cared about me, who gave me brachas when I needed them, who, when I was a child, a very young child, and my father had some pretty uh, pretty serious questions about various things associated with me and my siblings, the Rebbe gave very direct guidance on what we should do and how we should do it. And so when the Rebbe passed in 94, I was it was about four months before, five months before my bar mitzvah, it was the most devastating, you know, that and my mother passing away when I was 29 were, you know, definitely in the caliber of the most devastating days of my life and the weeks that followed. But, you know, I have to give our, our, our movement a little credit because I, at 12 years old, I didn't know what was going to happen, right? At 12 years old, you're trying to figure out how, how are we going to live, right? 12 years, you live with a guy in your life every day. Everything was around. The Rebbe's he's coming, he's going, we're dominating with him. He's, and then boom, right? And, and and if we're going to be honest for a moment, at, at that point, as Lubavitch Siddim, we didn't think he would ever pass away. I mean, Moshiach was coming and it was a done deal. We're going to Eretz Yisrael. And what do you do with this new reality? And to see the elder statesmen of Chabad, Rabbi Krinsky, the Rebbe's personal secretary, Rabbi Yael Khan, the Rebbe's chief chayzer, have the level-headedness to say, guys, we had a wish, we had a desire, we had a hope. We're going to continue the Rebbe's legacy. We're going to continue living with the values that he embedded with us. But we're moving on from, from the, the insanity, sort of, you know, the things that we thought would be that are not. We're going to still wait like every Jew, the 39 imams. We're going to wait for Mashiach to come every day. And a lot of the ideas that we really hoped for didn't pan out, and that's okay. We're Jews. We know how to move on. We know how to we know how to continue strongly, vibrantly, even if everything didn't work out exactly as we had hoped. And I think that's one of the incredible lessons that I learned, which is how I ended up in Montana. Because to survive in a place like Montana and thrive, when you and your wife are newlyweds practically, and you move into a place that has you know a month of minus thirty degrees every year, and you have to be able to have real deep embedded belief that the that the mission you're on is very real. And I get that from the Rebbe, despite the fact that we're 20, I don't know, 27, 28 years after his passing. Wow. And uh, 
if you look at some of the recent photos from the Kinnis uh, Shluchim, I mean, you see thousands of people and like, you know, they're full of energy. Don't worry about them. They're, they're, they're pumping strong. That's true. I mean, I look at it and people say to me, oh my gosh, Chaim, you live in Montana and for years. I've been, How do you get kosher food? I get the same, same 10 questions all the time. But when I look at colleagues of mine that live in, you know, in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam or live in Phnom Penh in Cambodia or Irkutsk in Siberia, I'm like, I live in America, baby. I live in Montana. So it has its challenges, but, you know, I'm only a flight away from delicious kosher sushi. For these guys, I mean, for them to get sushi, it's like a two-day trip. So I think that the context, I mean, everyone looks at the other person's challenges and goes, wow, that's, you know, or, or the mysterious nefesh and self-sacrifice. Javi and I don't look at ourselves. We recognize our challenges. We're not in denial. But we, when we look at some of our colleagues that are out there uh, in places that are not growing like Montana's growing, in places that don't have the American lifestyle that we're so comfortable with, I think we stand in awe of our colleagues in a, in a, in a very, very real way. And it inspires us because I don't know if I could ever live in Irkutsk. Right. Actually, I'm pretty certain I couldn't. <laughs> um, so you mentioned how some of the leading um, people under the Rebbe uh, carried on after his passing. Can we dive? Uh, Can we dive deep on that for a little bit? So, because even today you have different parts of Chabad that you know that some like like yourself say that um, definitely you know we got to move on, and some are still holding on to the past. They're you know maybe um, he's going to come back, or you know what what's going to be? We still send him this, we still send him that. How do you relate to that? What's your Messira, as you would say? How have your Rebbeim taught you to deal with? And what do you teach people? First of all, I appreciate the way you're asking the question. Normally, that question is asked with a lot of judgmentalism in advance, right? Assuming that I'm a Lubavitcher and therefore X, Y, and Z. So it's obviously slightly complex. I mean, there are Lubavitchers that claim a lot of things. And with no Rebbe to stand physically at the helm and tell people, cut that out or don't do this or do do this, it becomes more of a tit for tat. Um, I've always, from the day that I can remember, early teenage years, I've always looked up to Rabbi Yoel, the Rebbe Spazer, who was perhaps the chassid of our generation, as well as Rabbi Krinsky, because Rabbi Yehuda Krinsky, I think he's close to 90, he's turning 90, we share a birthday, Rabbi Krinsky and I. Um, Rabbi Krinsky was the Rebbe's personal confidant. The Rebbe and the Rebetzin, the Rebbe's wife, Rabbi Tzachayim Mushku, passed away in 88. They really cherished his, uh, he, he was a trustworthy confidant. And so I always turn to those two individuals. And from day one, I mean, when I say day one, I mean, from right after the Rebbe's passing, there was no there was no second guessing. They were clear. They were unequivocal that we are going to continue the Rebbe's legacy. We're going to continue the Rebbe's mission to bring Mashiach. We're going to continue the Rebbe's mission of finding, hunting down every Jew, even in Montana. But as far as the beliefs that we had, when there, and I have, I was 12 years old, I was a kid in Crown Heights, I had the same beliefs, the same hopes that the Rebbe would be Mashiach. Now, I mean, we all believe in Tchiyas HaMesim. We believe in the resurrection of the dead, and the Rebbe is definitely included in that. Who's going to be Moshiach? Let it be whoever he is. Let him just come already. I have no, in other words, that part of it, the obsession about who Moshiach is going to be, in my life, my mother, my parents' life, the family that I grew up, the, the, and I'm a five, six-generation Lubavitcher family, my grandparents, we never had, my, my, both my paternal, my paternal and my maternal grandparents, we were never part of that movement that was obsessed in living in the past and trying to make a reality out of something that's not reality. I was at the Rebbe's funeral. I write, I ripped Kriya for the Rebbe. I, I ripped my shirt as a 12-year-old kid for the Rebbe. We sat Shiva symbolically as Talmidim do according to Allah, as students would do. So 
I believe obviously Israel is very important. I think we have to, even amongst my own Chabad family, even people that have ideas that I definitely don't agree with and think they're either odd or sacrilegious or whatever, I think loving a fellow Jew includes everyone. And that it's even when it's uncomfortable and even when it's your own brother and sister. But as far as the theology, I think I'll stick to the Rebbe's theology. I, I, I only get my guidance from the Rebbe's Torah directly and any man-made inventions in the name of the Rebbe, I stay far away from. And I think that's an important thing for all Talmudim of any Rebbe, because it's this issue that we're dealing with in the collect in the greater Hasidic world, but also it's transferred itself to the greater Litvish world too, right? We say things in the name of any Gadol, any Rosh Hashiv, any Rebbe, and once things get out, go try to take it back. Good luck. So I, I try to stick to the to the foundational teachings of Chabad Hasidus, which are to me, a, a not only a breath of fresh air, but a source of life. And uh, more than that, I have no time. I got to put on film with Jews and get women to light Shabbos candles. Good, you're focused. You're focused. You no, I love that. Um, I want to know if you could share with us on a broader level what your favorite things are about Chabad Chassidus. For me personally, I think Chabad Nagunim are the most Heiligen Nagunim. Um, I, I think if, if I could farbring with anyone, Anan Zmiris, um, Nafshi Chamda, um, Avinu Malkeinu, yeah. Avinu Malkeinu, Inlonu Melech Elohot. I mean, you could sing these songs, close your eyes, you feel like you're going back to Eridurus. It's incredible. Um, and, and some of the warmth of Chabad is, you know, I, I mean, I do some outreach myself and I look up to you guys like, you know, I, I need to learn from you. But um, tell me, what are your favorite things about Chabad Chassidus? So uh, there's three things that really speak to me. One of them is Nagunim. I just we just had Shabbos of Arachim Kislev three days ago, and I sat with my Tillim Shabbos afternoon, and I got into the mood. And it took an extra hour to get through Tillim, but to do the Sefer Tehillim with the Nagunim, all Nagunim, but especially the Chabad Nagunim, uplifted me to a place. And I, you know, I know probably 60, 70 Chabad Nagunim just on the section of Tillim from Kapitel Pei until Kapitel Kupchav. So it was a phenomenal journey. So Nagunim definitely are the emotional, uh, spiritual feeling aspect of it, the warmth, like you said. A- another thing to me in Chabad Hasidus itself, starting from Tanya and all the way through the Rebbe's teachings, is the internalization. You can't get away with superficiality in Chabad Hasidus. It doesn't exist. It doesn't. It, 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 you have to be able to say, what? how is this changing my life? And I ask myself this question every morning. I'm an early riser. I start my day between 4.45 and 5.15 every morning. And the first thing I do, except for learning Chitas and, and Rambam and uh, Dafyoimi, I, I learn from the Rebbe's teachings. I'm learning now Fabrengans from 1957. And now a day goes by that I ask my, after learning, I say to myself, how do I bring that home to me, internalization? And I think the more fluff that exists in the world, for me, what Chabad Hasidus is an anchor for for Primius, for something deeper than just the superficial existence of life and trying to impress someone else in Shul. And the third is that I'm grateful every single day to the Rebbe primarily, but to Chabad Hasidus in general, for the way I see another Jew. Because it is a very, very unique way. And the more I interact with other Jews, the more I realize how unique it is. I have a Chabrusa with a Yidin in Borough Park every Wednesday, and we learn Hasidus. And I can tell he goes bananas. Because he says, I didn't grow up that way. He keeps saying, I didn't grow up that way. I'm like, okay, you could change. It's okay. But I, I think that the way we see another Yid, always giving the benefit of the doubt, not trying to be God's policeman and God's judge, 
just trying to be God's salesman. How can I bring Yiddishkeit to this person in a way that they can appreciate it and want to be part of it, right? You can't do that. You can't make God beloved if there's any any iota of judgmentalism. So for me, the way that we were trained to see another Yid, right? We have a joke in Chabad. I don't know how much of it's a joke. The Gemara says, Yisrael, Yisrael, that even if you sin, you're still a Yid. We have a joke that we say, that even if they didn't sin, even if they're a fellow from religious Jew, we still have to treat them with the same love and tenderness and sensitivity that we treat the secular Jew. So I think it's universal. How do we treat other Yidin? If a guy comes in and tells me he's from BMG in Lakewood, and he has payas, briska payas, and he's very bothered because I don't have uh, 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 the matzah that he needs to wash for shalashudas, I have to treat him with the same love as the Jew that eats a cheeseburger, and not think that just because he's from, he doesn't deserve the same kind of love. And I think that's a very important thing that I learned from, that I get from so this personal. You got me nervous because I came from Lakewood, but you just said that uh, <laughs> you're, you're going to treat me with the same love. So 100%. I'm down. I'm down for that. Uh, how did you get to Montana? Tell us. That's and that's you. You know, you're right. There are much further out places um, where they can't. You know, they, they're not a flight away from kosher food. But for us Litvox. Um, even Montana is pretty far out there. So tell us, how did he get there? So first of all, I want to tell you, for most Lubavitchers, until about 16 years ago, we moved to Montana. Montana was pretty out there, even for Lubavitchers. Uh-huh. Uh, in the summer of 2004, I was asked by Chabad headquarters, they sent rabbinical students, sort of like a Peace Corps, Jewish Peace Corps program, to remote areas where there's no per- permanent uh, Orthodox presence. And Montana was definitely on that list. To, to give you an, uh, an idea of how clueless they were, even at Chabad headquarters, they wanted me originally to do Wyoming and Montana together. And I'm like, guys, if you look at a map, I'll be spending the entire time just driving. This is like the size of three countries. So why don't you just give me one state? I'll go to that state with my fellow yeshiva student, and we'll take care of the Jews there. So we did. 2004, Arab Tisha we landed in Billings, Montana, and we spent a month traversing the state of Montana, visiting Jews, putting up the zuzas, selling uh, Jewish books, kids' books, adult books, Putting on film with people, going from hotel to hotel, from city to city, like circuit riding rabbis. And it was an incredible experience. And then in New York, the following uh, winter, I ran into Rabbi Kaplarski, who's the vice chairman of Chabad headquarters. And he said, uh, hi, what are you doing for the summer? I said, I don't know. I went to Montana last summer. Maybe I'll go to Mississippi. So he goes, no, you know what I think? I think you should go back to Montana. I said, why? He says, because they know you now. So if you come back again, you're building a relationship. So I said, okay, you want me to go back to Montana? I'll go back to Montana. So I went with another yeshiva student. And he was 100% right. Um, we came back the summer of 05. It was an incredible visit. So after the summer, I said, I was trying to find someone who was willing to go with me to Montana for Hanukkah, Hanukkah of 2005. And all my friends, they knew Montana was freezing. It's miserable in the, in the wind. You know, you're driving the roads. It's a, it's a hard, they said, Montana. We'll go to the Caribbean to, to help the shliach in the Caribbean with Mira Montana. So I called my sister. I said to my sister, what are you doing for Hanukkah? She said, nothing. I said, good. We're going to Montana to make Hanukkah parties. So my sister and I traveled to Montana. We did four Hanukkah parties in Billings, Helena, Missoula, and Bozeman. Uh, the following week, I traveled to San Antonio. I dated Javi for a couple weeks. We got married March of 2006, a few months later. I brought Javi. You, you don't, never bring a Texas girl to check out Montana in the winter. I brought her in August. From you know to go visit Montana, and uh, the rest is history. We decided to open up shop, and uh, not only do we have a vibrant uh, Chabad house in Bozeman, we've opened three additional Chabad houses around the state since. So, how long were you married when you went to Montana? 
So I wanted to go right up to my Shabbat My father-in-law, Rabbi Block, said he would like me to stay in Koilo for a year. So yeah. being the uh, troublemaker that I tend to be, the morning after our first wedding anniversary, we departed New York to Montana. He wanted a year. I gave him a year, not a day extra in Brooklyn. The Jews of Montana needed that, that right? Like you see us Mitzrayim. You had to make sure to get out. It was that one more second, they would have been stuck. <laughs> so we got married on, we got married in Chavez Other in 2006. Chavez Other the following year, we boarded a flight from Newark to Minneapolis and landed on a late Tuesday night in freezing Bozeman, Montana. And uh, started from scratch, from, from lifetime tables in a dining room, inviting guests for Shabbos. And uh, and to see an incredible growth of authentic Yiddishkeit and traditional Yiddishkeit, you called used the term before Masayra, right? And that's really my message to the Jews of Montana has always been, is that I'm not here to shut down Reform temples. I'm not here to even compete with Reform temples. I'm here to allow the Jews of Montana to see that there's a Masayra, there's a beautiful tradition, an authentic, beautiful history and way of life that they deserve to know about as well. So you didn't wait more than a day after your Shavrachas. It was the moment uh, <laughs> that you went. The difference is you were not on the 49th level of Tomo. How about that? Uh, I'll go with that. I was not. I, that. I, would hope, I would hope that I'm not. You're, you would um, hope. But I, I definitely appreciate that you wanted a year to, you know, sit, you know uh, make your foundation. Um, I would like to say that probably didn't hurt what you're doing today. But it didn't you know, hurt, and you know, I got to spend time with my family who lived just down the block, and we got to know each other. Javi and I, right? We didn't have it. We knew each other for three months before we got married, barely. So it was a great, it was a great experience. I don't have regrets about it. But you asked me when I moved. I told you when I wanted to move. When I actually you were ready. <laughs> the, the, you were ready. Um, okay, so I want to talk a little bit more about some of your work, your, your Chabad work, but then then we'll maybe get into your family, which is I know uh, an incredible. Com- we'll have an incredible conversation with that as well, but. You know, you mentioned that you're not out there to take away um, reform Jews. You're not there. You're trying to just bring authentic Torah uh, Judaism to them. So I, I watched a little bit of the Rabbi Go West or Goes West. Rabbi Goes West. Rabbi Goes West. Everyone check out the RabbiGoesWest.com. You definitely should go. And and Rabbi Brooke did not pay me to say this. So one of the critiques that are in that video is this uh, reform or conservative Reform. Uh, reform rabbi saying that Chabad don't play by the rules. They poach congregants, and um, generally Chabad, you know, they they if they if there's a yid they could get, they get. So how do you respond to these, you know, um, congregational rabbis that no, you guys are all over us. You you steal, poach, whatever. What's your yeah. response? Well, the we woman in the video that said that uh, in the in your documentary. Well, I'm, I'm the I'm the subject of the documentary. I didn't make a documentary, but yes. My answer to them is unequivocal. We are here for every Jew of Montana. Meaning, I'm not here to, I don't, I don't speak negatively about any Reformed temple. That's not my job. Right? I don't speak negatively about other rabbis or other people. That's, I don't speak negatively about other human beings, period. You want to know if I'm going to reach out to every Jew, no matter where they pay their membership? You better believe it, right? But I think it was Margaret Thatcher that said that consensus is the, is the absence of leadership. Right. And we have a problem in the Jewish world that we're constantly walking on eggshells trying to impress everybody. And here's the secret. You don't impress everybody. You have to have authentic values, Torah values, share it with anyone that will listen with respect, 
When they say no, you have to know how to back off and, and not be in their face. I would never, if someone says, Rabbi, take me off my mailing, your mailing list, in a heartbeat, I do that. But the idea that just because you're a, a paying member of the Reformed Temple, I'm not going to bring you Shmur Matzah out of your mind. Of course, I'm going to bring you Shmur Matzah. And so when the Reformed rabbis say that to me, it, even personally or on the film, I say, Ed, Francine, you're not going to stop me from reaching every Jew. And, the real, and, and, and in reality, I mean, I would say half of our shul is made up of Jews that were unaffiliated with anything, but half are definitely made up of people that came from various reform. There is no conservative in Montana. It's either reform or Chabad and have come from, actually, most of the founders of the Reform Temple in Bozeman, which started in the late 80s, I believe, most of their founding members are members of Chabad. So what am I going to shy away from that? I, I believe, and I, I said this on the film, I believe, to one of the reform rabbis, Alan, I said, you know, we believe in capitalism in America. <laughs> Everyone comes to town. This, in Bozeman, we have groceries on every corner. Everyone's open in a grocery. So when it, suddenly when it comes to religious services, when it comes to shul, we should back off and say, well, there's a reform temple, so I'm not going to do it. No, you guys do your thing. We'll do our thing. We're very different in what we do. They are on the far left of of their their form of Judaism. We are on you know, the most traditional Yiddishkeit. We offer authentic, beautiful Yiddishkeit. Whoever, people can choose where they want to go. And I think that, you know, I always use Delta Airlines as my model because I'm a, I'm a diamond medallion with Delta, so I always love uh, giving them the credit. But what I love about them is that they recognize that it's about the customer. Customer service is key, and it's the top value in the company. And I think when it comes somehow to religion, People think the customer service doesn't matter because people need to have a shul so I can get away with doing whatever I'm going to. No, you have to recognize, and we do, because that's been embedded, that every single human being has inherent value that I, I valued them for who they are at whatever place they are. And if they feel that, that authentic recognition that I value them, why wouldn't they want to come down with me? There was a while, by the way, the reform rabbi, it doesn't matter which one, one of them was walking around telling people in Bozeman that I'm a cult leader. So I had one, one Purim, one Purim, I was inviting some of the Hebrew to the Purim party. I said, guys, would you like to join the cult for Purim? And it became like an inside joke, right? Sometimes we try to run away from the antagonism. Sometimes you got to just take, you know, you got you to deal with it straight on, you know, straight up. And with a lot of humor, you can deal with anything. So we've had our fair share of people trying to question our validity or say things about us that I had to bite my tongue because I really wanted to respond and say, what are you saying? And I just, I realized that when it says, and that it meant this community and it's paid off because no one could ever say they heard Chaim ever speaking negatively about anyone in this town. I just don't do it. There's too much good to do. No time to speak negatively. That's incredible. Yeah. And we had, um, we interviewed Rav Shalom Kamenetsky, and I asked him about what it's like to grow up with Rav Shmuel and Rav Yaakov. I mean, does it get better than that? And he said what he observed was shtika. Just they, they didn't have to say anything because there was silence. I definitely. And I will tell you that as I get older, I'm, I'm almost 41, and almost since I turned 40, so it's not even a year yet, I, I've slowly become more and more, not an introvert, because I don't know if that's possible, but more cautious with my words, more cautious of who I want to tell what to, what's the gain, how much of it is Lashon Hara, how much of it is just bullshoving. So I have to be more careful. I don't have to be, but I'm choosing. I think with maturity comes a recognition that the babbling New York lifestyle that I grew up with is not beneficial to anyone, certainly not to me. So 
it's okay to recognize, even as a rabbi, not only specifically as a rabbi, that we change with maturity for the better, and uh, hopefully we take that to heart. Now, and you mentioned that you tell people that Montana, you know, you believe in capitalism. You know, I, no, then that that very much resonates with me. The way I would have said is that synagogues don't own Jews. God owns Jews. So you can't tell me that you have owning rights. You have title on this Jew. It just doesn't exist. Um, but that's, that's you know, it's, it's interesting you say that because one of the rabbis here in town once said to me, I don't know, 12 years ago, he says, you're stealing my members. I said, what, by gunpoint? What do you mean I'm stealing? <laughs> I sent them a postcard in the mail and they decided to come to the Hanukkah party. What, do you want to put me in jail for that? I, I, I still remember it was during the McCain-Obama election and I said, McCain has offices in Montana, Obama has offices in Montana, it's called America, we have freedom. So suddenly when it comes to shuls, we shouldn't have that. Besides, most of the people I know, because I showed up at their door, I still we still show up at people's doors with tefillin, with matzah, with mishalachmanas, with purim, with honey cakes for Rosh Hashanah, with a little bit of esrig and a sukkahmobile, latkes and donuts for Hanukkah with menorahs. You're not going to compete with it. There is no competition, right? That's another thing. And I, and, I, and I really want to say this in a way that sounds factual, not arrogant, because it's really not coming from a place of arrogance. When people say that the congregations are, are competition, no, they're not. You can only be competition if you're selling the same product. We're not selling the same product. I love Israel. They speak negatively about Israel. I love Messiah. They don't very much like Messiah. They certainly don't like certain verses in Leviticus and Exodus that I stick to. So, I mean, I can go through the list. So, we're selling two versions of Judaism. Mine is what I believe to be the authentic version of it, the way Moshe Rabbeinu taught it at Sinai. And I'm going to go with that. And you don't have to do, that's another key thing. And you do outreach as well. So, I think you don't have to do more than that. You have to be kind, respectful, and stick to your principles for the values you believe in. Because the minute you go off those principles, the minute you sell yourself short, then you have no value to them. Because the only reason they valued you in the first place is because you represented something different. The minute you become the consensus seeker, and before you speak, you have to be careful the whole time. Not that you're not going to offend people. We don't like offending people, but that you're not going to share the Torah's view because it may not be accepted. Then you're then you're done because they don't need you for that. They have 18 political parties, radio stations. They, they don't need you. They need you and they want authenticity. And if you sw- if you go away from the authenticity, you're toast. You know, like truth sells for itself. That, that's that's really it. I know that don't buy it right away. We'll come back later to buy it. Meaning, but you yeah. can't not sell the truth because of that. Excellent. Excellent. I, I really, uh, usually on interviews, you want to like push back to get like more and more, you know, that helps drive listeners. And, but I got to say, I love that. You know, I'm no pushback here. Um, I wanted to ask you one last question about your work. Then we get it. We got to talk about uh, your family. Um, you had a, I believe a mezuzah campaign. Um, so tell me, I mean, I know mezuzahs are big by you and Chabad tefillin are very big. Um, and, on Sukkis, you know, shaking a little of an esrog with them. What's the um, explain the method to us who are not in the Chabad world? What the power of a mitzvah does for them? Because I assume you're looking to impact their Jewish lives beyond the sixty seconds of saying Shema with filling on. So tell us a little bit about the method. I guess the strategy a little bit and how it's helped you. So, so I want to say two things. I want I want to say first of all that I I find that the best the deepest relationships that can be created in a community and the deepest bond that can be created from community members with Hashem is through Limudat Torah, through learning Torah. You know, I have Chavrusas all week long from, from Kuzari to Gemara. To, I made Siyumim with people and many Mesechtas. 
um, from from Chassidus Musar, pick whatever you want. We 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 you know, one. So there's something about learning Torah that fascinates the mind that hooks people into Yiddishkeit. The mitzvah campaign is not about getting them to do things later. And that I want to correct what you said. You want to talk about pushback? I'm going to do some pushback. <laughs> that was there was a setup, but yeah. Okay, good. Um, you did well. My, <laughs> when I put on film with a Jew who lives four hours away of Bozeman, from Bozeman, you know, in the, bo- the real boonies, um, if I don't recognize that those 60 seconds in Tefillin have inherent value to his relationship with Hashem, then why does my Tefillin have value? Because I put it on every day. If his Tefillin experience equals zero, then a thousand times zero is still zero. Then my Tefillin and your Tefillin have no value either. So either all Tefillin experiences, every time a Jewish male over the age of Bar Mitzvah puts on Tefillin, has incredible, infinite value to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and then my tefillin and your tefillin also have value. And if we do it more often, obviously, it has more value. But if, if his tefillin has no value, then ours doesn't either. And the whole thing could go to hell. We don't need any of it. So I do believe that when I put on tefillin with a yid, those 50, 60 seconds are connecting in with a yichud nifla she'en kamoy, with a, an eternal bond of his neshama with Hashem that's unbeatable and will always be there for him for all eternity. With a mezuzah in particular, I think the uniqueness of a mezuzah is that it, it creates an, a, a Jewish identity. If you have a mezuzah on your door, there was a woman here in Bozeman, actually she's on the film. Eight years or seven years, she wouldn't let me put up a mezuzah because she was a she is a child of, of Holocaust survivors. And she was petrified. Putting up a mezuzah meant that everyone in Bozeman in, this, in Montana is going to know that a Jew lives here. And she wasn't sure she was okay with everyone knowing this is the house of a Jew. It took seven years of persuasion until she called me one day and said, Rabbi, I think I'm ready. And now she has a beautiful mezuzah on her door. So, but when we did the campaign that every Jewish home in the state that doesn't have a kosher mezuzah on the front door, we will provide free of charge, which is not normal Chabad custom because you want people to cherish it. So you want them to sort of invest in it. We we went to Yoytzim and Aklau. We did an exclusionary program because what the mezuzah does is that every time you walk in and out of your door, you remember who you are. It reminds everyone around you that right over here lives a Jew. And so that identity part, especially when you're living in, there, there are, let's say, five cities in Montana that have what you would call normal populations of 30 to 60,000 people. But the vast majority of humans in Montana, all million of them, live in a, we live in a state the size of Germany. It's a big state with a million people. So most people are scattered in cities that have 1,000, 500, 2,000. You're in towns where I know, I know cities in Montana that have three Jews, four Jews. If they're not going to identify they'll get lost. And so mezuzah was a way not just of doing a mitzvah, the chiyuv of mezuzah, but also it adds such a beautiful component of remember, for them and the people around them to remember that this is a home of a Jew and therefore bring them into that space where they're comfortable in their own Jewish skin. So because believe it or not, that's still a thing. People are not comfortable. Yeah, so if I'm understanding you correctly, it's kind of like you want them to feel that they're Jewish because how can they do anything Jewish if they don't first feel the Yiddishkeit? So whether it's in the home or on the arm, that you got to get them to feel Yiddishkeit. Yes, but what I'm doing here to make them feel Jewish is not potato latkes or right. in the typical American bagels. Bagels, bagels, bagels. Right. No, I tell people, by the way, that I grew up, we never knew that bagels and locks were a thing. I moved right. to Montana and suddenly <laughs> I found out that it's a big thing with Jews and bagels and locks. I want them to get hooked in with the feeling, but I also want the hooking in to be with a mitzvah. 
not with fluff. Because again, if I if I have sixty seconds for this person to to have a yichud with Hashem, to have a oneness, like a moment of of, of oneness with God, how can I resist? I was visiting a Jew here for the last year who had a brain tumor, who was president of the Reformed Temple. Every every week I went to, he never wanted to put on film. But on Cholomite Sukkot, Hashanah Rabbah, three hours before Sukkot was over, I came with the Lulav and Esther, two weeks before the man passed away. And he made the brach on Tilas Lulav and Shechiyonu. And his wife took a picture of it. And, and it was such a moment. And two, two weeks later, he returned his soul to his maker. But he went, and to me, he, he returned his soul to his maker, carried with him, right? We say, he took his, his Dalad Minim B'yoda. He said, Ebishter, you know, I, I, maybe I wasn't the most observant Jew, but just two weeks before my Neshama left, not only did the rabbi shake Lulav and Esri with me, but three days before my soul, I, I sat there and said Vidui with him. Meaning I said Vidui on his behalf and his presence. He was already out of it. These are moments that are not quantifiable. You can't say, oh, it's worth this or it's worth that. It's truly priceless because eternity is priceless. Infinity is priceless. And we're giving people the opportunity to cash in on infinity. So, I mean, that should really be a Chabad slogan. Would you like a dose of infinity? It's Nitzchias. You're talking about eternity. And so I'm glad you pushed me back because you could fire me up. I, I live in Montana, right? If I was looking for Big, you know, if I was looking to just make Bali Chuba, to, to quote the word, right? I once had a younger man that was working for the coal in Seattle. I believe it's uh, now the coal is not there anymore. But he was traveling from Lakewood to go work in the coal in Seattle. He was all pumped up. He got a grant from a very famous Jewish organization that I won't mention. And two and a half years later, they cut the grant because he didn't provide enough Shemri Shabbos. And he was, and he did such amazing work. I could say his name. His name is Mayor Waxman, a wonderful Yid in Lakewood. We're best friends today. I know him because on the way to Seattle, he spent Shabbos in Bozeman. But he was broken by that because he worked so hard and did so much good work for Yiddishkeit. How could you quantify it by based on how many people, quote unquote, became Sh- and who decides what Shemir Shabbos? You know the story with Rabbi uh, Chabad Rabbi in, in California, Rabbi Levitansky, all of us shalom. Someone once asked him about a minion. He needs a minion of Shemir Shabbos, and he. Bunch of people showed up. It was very clear that they were not quote unquote Shemir Shabbos. And he said, Guy, you promised me a minute. He says, When they're sitting in Shul, they're Shemir Shabbos. Right? <laughs> we have a very warped, and some level, we have a stickle warped way That's of great. seeing it. When, you're in, when they're in Shul, people say to me, Rabbi, do people drive to Shul? I said, I have no idea. There's Airbnbs, there's hotels all over here. I mean, all I know, that's where this thing is. What do I know? So I think we got to shift our way of seeing things and not quantify these eternal mitzvahs. The nitzchi is the eternity of the mitzvah. By, oh, well, he just put on till once and I never saw him. So once, hello, once, a Kesher with the Abishta, you want to quantify that Kesher? That's a that's terrible. You can't quantify eternity. It just doesn't right. work. Exactly. It doesn't, doesn't add up. No, and, and I have the same uh, sour taste in my mouth about, oh, how many Bali Chuba did you make? Like, as if they're, like, you know, herding the cattle. Checklist. Um, checklist, <laughs> right? And number two, as if you control their decisions. You know, you have, they have their own Bechira, their own free will. What you're doing is shedding the light. And they have to, you know, the best marshal I heard is like, you know, outside a bakery, you know, sometimes you'll have like a tasting sesh, uh, station that these oh. little, uh, you know, pieces of a Danish, right? If you like the taste, you f- it feels and tastes real, you'll figure out how to get the rest. You know, I, I remember when a local guy, a doctor, a gynecologist in our community came one old giddy to shul on Shabbos. And he said, Chaim, it's the first Shabbos. Rabbi said, it's the first Shabbos that I'm not 
But this morning when I made my coffee, I set up a kettle before Shabbos so the hot water was already boiled and I didn't boil water on Shabbos. And I'm sitting there, like, a, you know, in my mind, I'm like, I'm such a smug New Yorker because I was so proud of him at that moment, right? The amazing, the choice that he made, the hardship, the decision. What do I know? I grew up in Brooklyn. We all had China for Shabbos. We put it up, the hot water kettle, and we were good to go. We, we forget that we grew up that way. And if we didn't, changing that at the age of 40 or 50 or even 30, that's a big deal. We say, take off work and come to Shul and Rosh Hashanah. But they didn't grow up taking off work. So when they show up at the Kia Shaifer, I tell people, if you can't come for the whole davening, at 11.37, I'm going to blow the Shaifer. That's the mitzvah of the day. Come to Shul for Shaifer. When they walk in the door for Shaifer, my heart is overwhelmed with joy for HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That look, his bonim yechidim, his, his only children, the Baal Shem Tev said that every yid is a ben yachid. Every child, like the Ebishter's own, every yid is like the Ebishter's only child. They walk in the door, despite everything we've been through to hear at Kia Shaifer, you know what that value is to the Ebishter? Now I'm going to come judge it because he didn't stay to hear my sermon, who, or didn't stay for Musaf. And if I didn't grow up from, would I stay for Musaf? <laughs> Or show up in the first place. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be the first one to bounce. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's a very healthy perspective. Um, who, who are we to judge and recognize every single bit of good? Absolutely. Exactly. Um, okay, let's change topics. Um, your family could be really an episode in of itself, but I understand you um, adopted your first child in two thousand. Seven or 2008? Oh, got married in 06, no, 2009. 2009. Okay, so 06 you got married. 09 you... Okay, so there was a three-year... So you went three years without having children. Did you know that you couldn't have children? No, when we got married, we knew nothing. We got married like every, like every other from couple, hoping and waiting that the nine, nine months, one week later, there'll be a, a, a baby. We moved to Montana a year later, like I said earlier, and there was still no baby. There was still no pregnancy. And we did the typical run, you know, uh, every time there was a day that we thought maybe we ran, we did the, the pregnancy test, the whole, the whole thing. At the time, there was no mikvah in Montana. So every month for 19 months, we drove to Salt Lake City, Utah, seven hours each way for the mikvah, um, including in the winter when the roads are horrendous. By the way, if you ever need an incentive to build a mikvah, that's the way to do it. You know, many Chabad couples, they move out. And the reason they don't, it takes a while until they build a mikvah is because, you know, between pregnancies and nursing, there's not so much mikvah. So, yeah, we'll do it next month. And then with us, it was every month without a yotz, without any exclusions, every month to Salt Lake City, like clockwork. And it was a big avoida. Um, and, you know, Rabbanim kept the sending, Rabbi, God bless them, but they, you know, unless you're going through it yourself, they kept sending us in circles, wait another year, wait another month, try this, try that. We ended up working with the incredible people at Boyne Island. Rabbi Bachner. Rabbi Bachner. If you want to interview somebody. Yes, we've been in touch. Yeah. Shlema is, I personally, I have a personal relationship with him. He's, he's a, he's, he's, I don't like using the word tzaddik because these days everyone's a tzaddik. He's a bainani, <laughs> like from Tanya. You know, he's, 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 the, he's, the, he's a bainani. He's really a, 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 an angelic human being. But they were incredibly helpful to us. And in June of 09, no, June of 08. June of 08. So just over two years after our wedding, we already knew based on the procedures that were done that we were not going to have biological children, which for a from couple was, you know, that early in your marriage, right? I was 26. Javi was 24, 23. I mean, she was 23. I was 26. 
it was devastating. It was, it was beyond devastating. Your whole world, and, and and more than that, in addition to your younger siblings getting married and popping out babies, you're going back to Montana alone, running a chabad house in Montana, knowing that the future is bleak. I mean, what what you're not going to have a family? What what's this whole thing going to look like? And so, my shver, my father-in-law, you know, the uh, statesman in the family said right away. He said. There must be children in this world that Hashem wants you guys to, to take care of, to have as your own. Which meant nothing to us. It was like, you know, words floating around. But a few months later, when things settled down, we started looking into adoption, which turns out adoption is a, you know, having a baby biologically has its challenges, but adoption is it's a, whole, a whole list of challenges, you know, with home studies and social services and finding a baby and then deciding, do you want a Jewish baby, not a Jewish baby, are you a Caucasian baby, a black child, a Hispanic child, like, well, you know, there's so many questions. And you grow up, I grew up from Crown Heights. What do I know from adoption? And, and by the way, even Javi, who grew up in San Antonio, where she did know more of adoption than I did, it was a far, we never thought it would be our story. But we decided early on that if Hashem meant this for us, then we're going, we're going down that path. Uh, so I want to stop you just for a yeah, second. Sure. Why didn't you take the approach that Abishter could do anything and just, just keep trying, keep going. What what made you shift gears and move on to the next chapter? Very, it's it's it's, it's a it's a. I have to be careful how I respond to that because I don't want to, I don't want to poo poo what other people do. Uh, when we were struggling before we had the procedures that gave us the final the finality of the of the prognosis based on current at the time current medical advancement. My mother sent me sand, I think, from Saudi Arabia. Someone told her, if you eat this sand, it's good for, for fertility. I mix it with applesauce. And don't, don't think I didn't do it. I did it. My father took me to Hadish, to the Rebbe's caver in Ukraine, because a friend of his told him it's a zgula there. Uh, there's another wonderful Jew in Kranites who took me with him to the oil, and at the Rebbe's oil gave me incredible brachas. This was all done before the procedure. Our our decision after the procedure, the procedures were that of course, if Hashem wants us to have biological children, we still can. But in the meantime, we're not going to sit around there. Anan Paula, the Imam Anan, is a term that the Rebbe uses. We are day, we are day laborers. There's a job that has to get done. You don't sit around and wait for the brachas. Make a keli. So you make a keli. The Hashem says that Achnasas Archim is a zgula for, for, for children. Our home is an open home to Jews from all over the world. We do whatever we have to do as a keli, and then you do whatever you do you need to do to create a family and to not only create a family, but to give these children a gift that uh, of a healthy, stable home. And so we started this process of searching and searching all over the world. You start learning the complexities. And uh, it, it, it was almost more disheartening than the, than the infertility diagnosis, because here you finally accepted the terms that God has presented to you. Okay, adoption it is, and it ain't easy. And then I see you. Day, I see you took a deep breath right there. Tell us what what is the biggest challenge? Because it's not something that we deal with every day. And to appreciate what you went through, we're not going to know it without you know someone like yourself. No, no, I, 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 so, so first of all, there's an incredible financial challenge. And adopting a child as an incredible, you know, the average child of the adoption between lawyers and adoption agencies, and 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 you know the cost of traveling to the place of the adoption and staying in a hotel for weeks and then you're looking anywhere from twenty five to sixty thousand dollars easily. That's a start. That's a start. But that's not. Then you have the issue where you can have a biological mother who wants you to adopt their child because they're going through something and they need a home for this child. And then they give birth in the hospital and they tell you, "Sorry, changed my mind. I'm keeping the baby." 
legally there's no recourse, meaning, and, and you don't want there to be recourse. You want a child to be with their biological parents if that's possible. So as much as you're bleeding, your heart is bleeding because you waited four months for this baby, it can change last second and you're in the hospital. Then you have the issue of, we were scammed once. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, CBS News actually ran a story about it. We were scammed by someone who came to a Chabad rabbi and said they had, they're pregnant and they want to give a baby for adoption and we were waiting for our baby and then we found, it was a whole scam. And then at the end of the day, we never got the baby. Then you have, you know, the 30 days after the adoption, some states it's 30 days, some states it's six months where the biological parents can change their mind. So the 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 inter- the emotional and mental turmoil that an adoptive parent experiences in the initial stages, and then the later stages where every single there's an adopted child on earth that doesn't experience what's called attachment disorder because they're not with their biological parents and they know that inherently. And so there's there's a lot of a lot of things that happen later in life um, that are extremely challenging with adopted children. And so in America, we have this thing, oh my gosh, you adopted a kid from Africa? That's amazing, right? It's true. There's an amazing side to it, but most people don't realize that any any parent, Jew or Gentile, any parent that's adopted a child is has dealt with and will deal with immense challenges. The only thing I'll say, like I say to many from couples who call me, is that it's still worth it all. There's nothing like it in the world. But to say that it's an easy journey, it is not. Um, whatever challenges biological children can give you, add to it the attachment issue, and the challenges are exacerbated. So it's it's a journey. And times that in our case by five, we have five adopted children. It's it's a I don't even know how I have time to get on this uh, this uh, Zoom with you. <laughs> well, we made time. So. <laughs> Uh, okay. So I'm like at a loss for words, like which question do I ask next? But, um, talk about the attachment because we actually, we did a, um, we did an episode trauma to triumph with, uh, an expert on, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, in EMDR therapy. It was a fascinating uh, episode learning how to take things from the amygdala to the prefrontal cortex, not have flashbacks because flashbacks don't tell time. How do you change the uh, the memory to something that does have time so you could logically debunk it's just a fascinating uh, episode don't mean to pat myself on the back but it was a really we learned a lot um the the theory that this therapist that she gave sipalea uh, scheinberg lcsw and she she mentioned the attachment theory that when a child feels an emotional intense attachment to the parent they have, they're much more uh, bulletproof like than their counterparts that don't have the attachment. Here, you're dealing with someone who, with an adopted child, you're dealing with someone who, by definition, can't even get that. So that's what you know how I could understand it be so challenging. It's good for for myself, but really, I believe all our listeners that haven't gone through this process to appreciate how to you know someone who has gone through it, a child that is adopted, you know to. You know, how to interact. So tell us about that specific challenge of uh, detachment. Yeah, so, so the reality is that especially in the younger, you know, in, in the first days, first hours of childbirth, the child needs to be connected to the mother that carried them. And if they don't have that, then their entire life, they will struggle with an identity crisis of who they are because they were not coddled in that way at, at the early stages. So even when they have amazing, loving, adoptive parents, 
they are always going to second guess whether they're truly wanted because in the moments when they needed that that the coddling so much, there was none there, especially not the natural coddling that's needed. And so just think about it. When you shame a child, if a kid has a fight in school and says, you're an idiot or, you know, your family, you, you know, your family's. So a regular child gets very hurt by that. An adoptive child, it, 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 it reaches so deep into their essence of who they are, where they, they're already questioning their identity. They're already questioning whether they fit. Why am I in a family where I don't have biological siblings, right? In my case, we have four white daughters and a black son. And so you add, take my son, for example, on a good day, he has to ask himself internally, he's nine and a half years old. He has all these deep questions, really, really deep questions associated with his adoption, associated with his race, associated with where he fits. You tell a kid like that, something like, why are you so messed up or... What are you doing in a white family anyhow? You could send a kid like that back years in development because it takes them back to their primal instinct of when I needed it most, I no one was there for me. And so it's almost like an adoptive parent. It's a lose-lose. You give these kids everything, every fiber of your being is devoted to their well-being. And you can't have any expectations from them, right? There's a, there's a book that my wife loves referring to. It's called The Body Keeps Score, right? Our bodies, our existence, we keep the body. It, it's a natural thing. It keeps score of any experience we've had, right? Talk about PTSD. That, that, that's what it really, you know, is keeping score. Imagine what a kid, imagine what a kid. I mean, one of my children was in a hospital for seven weeks in a, in a foreign country where for for what for as far as we know, cried for days on end and no one cared. You know what I mean? You know what that does to a child that they cried, even they were not cognitively, they're crying for days on end and nobody, no nurse, nobody cares. You know what that does to their way they see the world and how insecure they feel in the world and how they truly believe there's no one there to protect them and, and therefore they question everything. So you know, I, again, I think adoption is one of the great, and there's a reason why, you know, Esther Amalka, Moshe Rabbeinu, they were all adopted. Moshe was adopted by Batya and uh, Esther by Mordechai. And, 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 and by the way, Sarah Bas Usher, the famous line over there that she was not Bas Usher. It says, the shame Bas Usher, Sarah. She was not even the biological child of Usher. Usher married Sarah's mother. And so she, he, he, he was like a stepdad, but yet the Torah refers to her as Bas Usher. Right. right. So there's a beautiful side to it that, it, 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 you know, I had my daughter's bas mitzvah the other. It, 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 there's a beauty to adoptive parenting that's unbeatable. Specifically because it's unnatural and yet it takes on such a natural experience. But to, to sugarcoat or try to poo-poo away the challenges of, of mostly of what these children are experiencing and how that acts out in the house and what that does to their behavior and to their mental, emotional state would be foolish for me to sit here and say that it doesn't exist. It does. And adoptive parents need to be need to recognize that that's what comes down the pike. We're going to be doing a few episodes on mental health uh, because it's important and it also gives us the best reviews. I'm telling you, the downloads we get <laughs> on mental health episodes, it's through the roof. Um, no, I told my governor once. I told my governor yeah. once. I, I, I asked him a question about mental health in Montana. Yeah. And he, you know, he gave some answer, whatever. And then it was a, it was a room full of big donors. And on the way out, every one of the donors, Pat, me, Rabbi, thank you for bringing them up. Rabbi, thank you for bringing that up. Why? They didn't want to bring it up because they didn't want to be the person that everyone should think has mental health issues. 
I have nothing to worry about. I say exactly what I think. And I realize that it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. That, that mental health is universal. People are struggling with it, especially in today's day and age. And so adoptive kids have all those regular challenges with their extra dose of their own. And so it's just it's something we need to be cognizant of. Absolutely. You know, we're, we're going to be doing an episode with Dr. Lou Fon, who's going to be the director of psychiatry and the and who's going to be running the Jeffrey Schottenstein Center of Resiliency. Um, this initiative that Schottensteins here in Columbus are embarking on to bring awareness and education and try to take away that stigma that we could talk about it and, and learn about it and help people, et cetera. Um, definitely. I, I, everyone said, thank you for saying it. They, they could tell you that they wanted to say, but they didn't want to tell the governor that exactly. they wanted to say it. Um, the governor should know they might have a child that has mental health challenges. Like, what are you embarrassed of? The funny thing is, is that, I think someone once asked this to Rabbi Torsky, Rabbi Dr. Torsky, uh, an incredible person, like a, some shidduch and someone, um, a, 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 like, should I be worried if there's someone in the family? He said, first of all, there's not a family that doesn't, as number one. Um, and second of all, he had another story about someone who said, I know for a fact that my family has zero uh, mental health, and yet he, he he had a he writes in the book he had to bite his tongue from saying I treated your wife for depression like you know he couldn't before you met like you know what I mean it's 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 like physical I mean people have physical things you know there, there's a huge correlation so, so not getting trying not to get off yeah. topic although we just did um, what are the you know the the mental health challenges for children with adopt adoption I would imagine with my limited limited education on this. That if attachment brings security, detachment would probably bring anxiety. A lot of anxiety. A lot of, like I said, a lot of it is is, is there's there's like scar tissue, right? They have the, the scars of 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 their reality, and then you know, in addition to the to the actual attachment, you have to be ready as a parent at the age of it starts in different increments. You know, at, at six years old, certain questions start coming up. At nine years old, more questions come up. And our family's always been open. Our kids knew from the day they could understand that they're adopted, right? So that was the way to deal with it. So we never we never hid from it, but they have questions, right? Am I ever going to be my biological parents? Um, why did they give me up for adoption? And we don't even not give you up, but why did they give you to, to an adoptive family? Um, you know, do I have biological siblings? You know, and then there's the the, the 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 painful statements that come out of children's mouths, right out of the mouths of babes. You hear the most painful things you don't want to hear as a parent. And it's vital for me and Javi to always remember that we're not the villains in the story. We did the altruistic act to give them a stable, beautiful life. And part of that, when you take on the journey of adoption, is to be the recipient of some some harsh things that are being, you know, lodged at you and just say, it's not about you. Recognize it's not about me. The whole thing, right? Parenting in general is not about the parents. That's that's one of the big issues we deal with is parents get offended because they think it's about, it's not about you. They don't owe you anything, right? Kids are not meant to make parents happy. And for that matter, by the way, parents are not meant to make kids happy. Nachas machine. Right, Right, my Javi goes crazy from the whole nachas. Oh, I hope you get... Give yourself nachas, yeah. right? We learned in therapy. My, one of my kids really doesn't like it, but we learned in therapy years ago. Um, Dr. Brad Reedy at Evoke Therapy in Utah. Uh, one of my children went to a wilderness uh, therapy program, and he teaches that don't ever tell a kid that I'm proud of you. 
Because when you tell a kid, I'm proud of you, all you're telling them is that it's about you. The pe- I'm proud of you. Instead, you should tell a child, I hope you're proud of yourself. Right? It's a, it's a, it's a slight wow. Now, one of, my kids, one of my kids is gung-ho against it. No, I want you to say I'm proud of me. But in, in, in reality, Dr. Reedy's right, that if you really want to build a child up, Stop making about, may you give your parents nachas? No, give yourself nachas. Grow up to be a source of nachas to yourself. Yes, and obviously it should spread to all of Klai Yisrael and to the world. There's too much in parenting that has been about the parents. Mm-hmm. And I have a child that struggles with their Yiddishkeit. She's 18 years old. And I have, I have to learn the hard way that it's not, her decisions about her Yiddishkeit are about her and God, not about me. And it's a very, very hard thing for me as a, also, I come from a black and white type of Karnayat's family. And, and by the way, it was never about shame. I was never embarrassed by her decisions. It was like, she's disrespecting me. What is she doing? And my wife kept saying to me, this is not about you. Stop making this about you. And it took me a long time to realize I can still struggle. It can still make me cry at night. It can still pain me in the heart. But don't make a child ever think that their relationship with God is there to impress their parents because what that does is the minute the parents aren't around, they're playing a game of hide and seek. They're going to show you, they'll make believe they care about Yiddishkeit when they don't. You want them to find God on their own. You want them to find Yiddishkeit on their own. And with adoptive children, just think that's also exacerbated because there's always the games where children play to test their parents, right? To see that they still love me. Are they going to love me even? Adoptive children do that a thousand times over. Wow. They met their match because Javi and I, we work really hard. It's not a natural thing. We work on it through chassidus, through therapy, to be the best parents we can be, which in most cases means to let go. And, and let God. Exactly. To let go, let God, but, and, and be there for your child in their hurt, in their struggle. Right? My daughter moved into a college campus, and I didn't say anything. Then about a month later, she goes, hey, Abba. Are you going to put up a mezuzah on my, on my dorm room? Uh, I was waiting. I'll be there in an hour. Right? So, so you have to be able to recognize that each human being, your own child, or the secular Jew in Montana, doesn't matter, or the from Jew in Lakewood, everyone's in their own journey seeking a bond with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And if we get involved, if we, if we become the blockage, right? if we stop, if we're the obstacle in their relationship because we're trying to pump our way of living and our... Uh, understanding of chassidus and Torah and oh my gosh, what's going on here? Then we're going to end up hurting it more than helping it. And that's the hardest thing. It's the hardest thing for parents to hear it, to see it, and to say, I'm here for you, my dear child. Right? Shimon Russell, all these guys talk about sure. it. Sure. Yeah, yeah. He's on the list. He's on the list. No, I'll be fishing. Everyone has their own style of dealing yeah, with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Except I don't deal with it professionally. I deal with it in my in my living room. <laughs> Uh, you, so you, you have I'm real uh, from my, my own journey. Yeah, you, you have your own uh, aidus. Yeah, yeah. I mean, by the way, I mean, we adopted, like you said, our first child was adopted in 09. 13 months later, we adopted our second child. And, you know, ZC, our second child, turns out to have severe special needs. She has a very unique genetic disorder that we deal with every day of her life. We didn't know that when we adopted her. Um, she was also born what they call prematurely, although I'm pretty sure that's exactly when the Abishter wanted her to be born. And so we were not on site. And it was a three-day yontif. And they told us if we're not there Saturday night to get the baby, it's going to go to social services. 
So my brother and sister picked her up and we met her on Sunday morning at Newark Airport at Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Now, how many parents could say they met their kids for the first time at Enterprise Rent-A-Car? That's a great right? stat, right? The fact. And then that was in oh, that was in 2010. In 2013, we adopted our son, Manny, who's now nine and a half years old. He's, a, he's our biracial child. And what that became interesting is that we always adopted babies. In 2016... A 12-year-old girl, just turned 12, came to our Gandhi Stroll summer camp in Bozeman. She came from a pretty uh, challenging home. She was living with a single father, and it was a very challenging environment. And to make a very long story short, uh, six weeks later, we adopted her as our child at 12 years old. So that's a very different experience, taking in a 12-year-old, right? We had a daughter who was our oldest, and now she's an older sister overnight. So we have an oldest child and a first child. They're not the same. Our first child and all. And by the way, when from people come to visit Bozeman, I used to love, now it's harder a little bit, but I used to love doing it. This is my daughter, um, Shoshana. She's um, 15 years old. And then like three minutes later in the conversation, say, Javi and I got married 13 and a half years ago. And you can just see the eyebrows. Hold on, he got married 13 and a half years ago. <laughs> and I give them the look like, you know, this what happens. And you can see the from people that are at my Shabbos table, so they have to be careful what they say. And then finally, like five minutes later, I say, oh, by the way, our children are adopted. You can just see the blood pressure drop. Ah. They're about to get a heart attack. You have to have fun, right? I was once on a flight. I was once on a flight, and many was misbehaving, right? This three-year-old black kid running around the plane. I said, Chav, if we don't say anything, it'll take them like at least three hours to figure out whose kid he is. If we don't say anything, right? <laughs> They're going to be looking for some <laughs> black parents. But I think part of it is the, you know, is, is enjoying the journey. And I think that's both with our shluchas in Montana and with our families that you have to find the humorous moments. You have to find the the um, the joy in the moments. And then, you know, uh, six months ago, our children needed dogs for therapeutic reasons. You know, what is a little animal therapy is big. What am I, what am I doing with dogs? Most basic. I'm 40 years old. I never had a, I never even had a pet frog. Mm-hmm. And now I have two golden doodles, 80 pounds each, living in my house. Right. But you do for your children. You know, again, going back to what I said from Thatcher, consensus is the absence of leadership. You can't, you have to be a from Jew. Shulchan Aruch is our guiding light. Hasidus guides me. But you can't be, you can't do a survey in Chabad whether Chaim Brook should get a dog. You do what your children need because the therapists and those that are professionals have guided you to do that. And then you live with comfortability knowing you did the right thing. So a year after Shoshana, we adopted our fifth child. Haraleh was named for my mother. My mother passed away after 12 years of battling cancer. She was 54. I was 29. Um, that was in 2010. And uh, we finally had a, a baby girl that we could name for my mother, which was a very special thing for me. And we have five children ages 5 to 18. They keep us very busy. And that in the Chabad house is, uh, is a 24-7 gig. But if you enjoy what you're doing, I truly believe that if you have fun and you're enjoying every minute and finding the beauty in each moment, which is an active thing, doesn't have you have to choose, right? We can choose to look for negativity or we can choose to look for the beauty and the, and the joy and the fulfillment. And we try to do that. Not every day is hunky-dory. There are harder days. There are easier days. And I don't, no one should be fooled and think because you meet a Chabad rabbi in the street that's smiling, putting on film. That means, oh, <laughs> these Lubavitches never have challenges. We have our fair share. But we believe strongly in what we do, and we believe it in our heart of hearts. And so if we love every Jew, it includes even the five kids, not even, specifically the five kids in my own living room. And uh, we hope that in the process we do our, what do they call it on Lakewood? My ishtadlus. Yeah, I do my ishtadlus. 
<laughs> and we make the keli and the Abishta should send the brachas and the ur down our way. Every every person has their own lachlicha, their own journey. Sounds sounds like you've maximized on that. Um tell me, when you go through the process, are you looking specifically for for Jewish families, Jewish children or not? What goes into your calculation when you when you're looking for adoption? It's very interesting. I mean, the Ebishter, people ask me all the time, how did you even end up with five adoptive kids? Adoption on a good day is a very hard process to find a child, and somehow we ended up with five. And I truly have to answer them the honest truth, which is Hashem literally sent them to us. I mean, these, they came to us. With all the searching that I did around the world, the Chavi and I did, it didn't, that now had, it came because the Ebishter sent them to us, each one in their own situation. We have our own process of what we want. I'll, I'll, I'll share what I can share, which is that you know, I always said that I, 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 it's challenging enough to adopt a child. I'm not going to adopt a child that has special needs, like severe special needs. Turns out that I adopted a child with no special needs that had plenty of special needs. So, you know, I think putting too much criteria is is not a good thing. The Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, was open to both adopting Jewish children or adopting non-Jewish children that go through a gayrus that convert to Judaism. So on my person, I'm open to both as well. But I definitely know that in the yeshiva shachsidish world, most of the rebbes and rosh yeshivas are encouraging couples to adopt only the children that are born Jewishly, which really, really makes it hard because there's not a lot of Jewish children that are out there for adoption. Uh, if you're a secular Jewish college student on a college campus, there's a much better chance that, that you would abort the child than go through the pregnancy and, and give that child to an adoptive family. So there's very, very few. There are, it exists. Um, but I'm blessed that as a Lubavitcher, the Rebbe opened my mind to both options because it definitely makes it easier. And, you know, I never thought I'd adopt a, I'd adopt anyone that wasn't Caucasian, white Caucasian because, you know, you want the family to look seamless, you know, and, and Americanized. But then the Abishra had a plan where there was a Yiddish and a Shama that needed a home, and he, we knew in advance that he could very well be a, a biracial child. And Javi and I had long discussions, and, you know, she, she's an incredible woman, my wife, and together... We made that decision, and we've never looked back. It's been the greatest, uh, the, one of the greatest brachas in our life is having this Menachem Mendel. He's a boy named for the Rebbe. Um, he had his bris on the eighth day um, with family and friends. We couldn't be back in Montana. We were still in a different state where he was adopted, but everyone came there. And so I think every family needs to get the guidance from their Rebbe's, their Rabbanim, because it's complicated stuff. Adoption is kind of, there's laws of Yichud and Sneas and Shemer Nagiyah. There's, there's laws from here to Timbuktu, but they're all laws, like every other section of Allah. You can deal with it, you can work it through. If you're determined to create a family and, and for your, for whatever reasons, Hashem chose your family to be an adoptive family, not a biological family, there's ways to do it and to do it beautifully. And I, I take great, uh, I don't want to say pride, but Nachas in the fact that there's many, many from families that have adopted children today that I was actively involved in helping them get there. Um, and I'm in touch with them, and it's sort of like this group of chevra. And I, I hope that uh, the those that need brachas for fertility should find it, but if it's not in the cards for them, they should realize there's another option as well of how to make a family happen. Call him a kaim nefesh achas ki ilukim ha uh mala. You you make your own world. You make your own world. Yeah. Um I have to say on Kolotes we try to have many different voices. Um that that makes things beautiful when you have so many different perspectives and takes. Um I don't know if we got as many voices on any other podcast that we just got on this episode. We got so much covered and 
I loved every single part of this conversation. There's a lot to learn from you. And it sounds like a lot to learn from your wife as well. Uh, maybe we should have a follow-up with her about how she parents. Maybe we should do that. Um, just popped into my head. But by the way, if you take Javi on, she goes on podcast. If you take her on, I'm just warning you, she, you're gonna have you're gonna have a lot of pushback. You guys are gonna have a, then you'll have real action because she's very she's a very determined woman from Texas who has a lot of opinions about parenting and raising children. Well, guess what? It's pretty. <laughs> so I could I could edit anything embarrassing. There you go. <laughs> So I'll make an introduction for you. Yeah, yeah, very good. Now, thank you for for coming on, sharing this story, which is like I, I'm going to be. This is going to be spinning in my head the whole night long. Is so, what you said about it's not it's not about the parent, you know, who said whoever made it about you, you know. As I have young children, so uh, you know. The, the Rebbe once told uh, what was his name, Rabbi Siegel, Nachum Siegel's father, the one yeah. from the RCA. He once told the Rebbe that he had a, the Rebbe gave him a certain shluchas and he said it was it was very hard. It wasn't easy. And the Rebbe said to him in Yiddish, Rebbe Siegel, contract with the Shalom, since when do you have a contract with God that it was supposed to be easy? Right? No one ever said, Dr. Seuss says, no one said it was ever meant to be easy. They just said it would be worth it. That's my motto. It's not about easy. Parenting was never meant to be easy. And if it's easy, fantastic. But for me, it isn't. It's a journey, and it's a journey I take on every day. I never know what the next day will bring, but I know that that's exactly what the Ibrishta wants me to be doing, so I'm going to do it with every fiber of my being and hope that there's good outcomes. That's that's a great mentality to have and a great way to conclude. Just take it day by day. Whatever Kaddish Baruch Hu wants will be in that day. Rabbi Brook, thank you so much for coming on. I will take you up on both your offers because at the beginning you invited me to Montana, right? So uh, maybe my, I don't know how. My invitation still stands, even though we're done for, we spoke for an hour. I still want you to come. You still want me to come. No, (laughs) now you want me to come twice, of course, right? Absolutely. Uh, (laughs) With your cousin Mayor, the one who introduced us. Oh, sure, sure. Mayor Roberts, absolutely. Give him a shout out that he could see this idea. Um, Thank you for coming on. Uh, Very much, very much appreciate this conversation. And, uh, Let's keep in touch. There's a lot. To, I see. There's a lot to learn from you. Let's bring Mashiach, baby. That's the bottom line. Right. That's right. Amen. To listen to all Kolot episodes and see upcoming guests, visit kolopodcast.com. We are also on all podcast players. Type in Kolot on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Podbean, and Amazon. Share with your friends and please make sure to give us a five star review. Kolot is a project of the Columbus Community Kolel, a full-time Jewish learning center in Bexley, staffed with high-caliber Torah scholars. Ever since 1995, boys, girls, men and women from all backgrounds and affiliations have found many opportunities to connect with Torah and mitzvahs at the Kolel. Whether it's a study partner, an engaging lesson, or a program, the Kolel is your one-stop shop for all your Jewish learning. If you want to know how you can benefit from the Kolel, visit thekolel.org. That is T-H-E-K-O-L-L-E-L dot org and forever be inspired.